Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to uh, be looking at, at verses 3 through verse 6. That's the way that this passage reads. 
Paul starts by writing this letter to this church. But if you notice that, that he doesn't say much about the church in the section that we're in. It's almost as if he's writing this letter to them, and for a moment he gets this glimpse of something greater than that church. And what he gets a glimpse into, I want to submit to you, is the work of the Trinity. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to keep them open because I want us to show you how we're going to break this passage up. Just by way of uh, information, look at verse 3 and go all the way down to verse 14. In the Greek language, this is one sentence. It's one sweeping sentence that starts right there in verse 3. And there is, it does not stop until you get to the end of verse 14. And so what you get right now man, is this outpouring, this going on and on and on and on of praise to our triune God. And how do I know that Paul has the Trinity in store? You look at verses 3, blessed be the God and Father, right? So he, he, he's talking specifically this morning to us about the Father. And then go down to verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. It was not the Father's blood that was shed on the cross. It was God the Son's blood that was shed on the cross. And so right there in verses sort of 7 through 12, you get, I think, this, this, this bird's eye view into the unique contribution of the second person in the Trinity, which is Jesus, the Son of God. And then finally, Paul sweeps up the end. If I look at verse 14, uh, verse 13, that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, you believe in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right there. It was a guarantee of our inheritance. So by the time you get to the end of, of verse 14, what Paul has done in this one sentence is put the Trinity on display before you. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all contributed in unique ways to the saving of his people. And so we're going to break this one sentence up into three parts and three sermons. And today, all I want us to do is to think about God the Father. That's all I want us to do is to, to do what Paul does when he starts to bless God and to love on God. He starts with the Father. And so I got three points today. Uh, the first point is the Father deeply blesses his people. The second point is Paul, we find out why the Father blesses his people. And the third point is going to be how do we respond to these blessings? So Paul makes a case that the blessings that we have in Jesus, they come from the Father. He pulls back the veil and tells us why the Father is doing what he's doing. And then he tells us how do you respond? If this is really good news, what is the response? This is not doctrine for doctrine's sake, just to fill our mind with information. That Paul says there is a response to this doctrine should call, it should evoke, it should arrest our attention and our affections, and it should make us, compel us to be a different type of people. So that's what I want to look at. The first thing we see is that, that the Father blesses his people. Now look, look at the first verse, look at verse 3. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So right there, he, he, he makes a case that these blessings that we have in Christ they come to us from the Father. But what type of blessings are they, Paul? He says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so let's just stop right there and, 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 and talk about what he does not say, right? He does not say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you with every material thing you need. He does not say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who promises you that you're going to drive a Rolls Royce that you're going to have two houses, and that you're going to have a mansion, 
and that you're gonna, you know what I mean? He, he does not go to these physical blessings. And I think that, that that's really, really important because in our day and age, whenever we think about blessing, just turn the TV on. That, that it, it's almost always prosperity. It's almost always healing. It's almost always a wife. It's almost always a spouse. It's almost always a better job. It's almost always a better future for your children. And here's the thing that Paul does. He does not deny that we need food and clothing and life. Matter of fact, in 1 Timothy, he says, look, be content with what you have. He says, you brought nothing into the world, and you can take nothing out of the world. If we have food and clothing, we should be content. Paul also writes, I have learned contentment in all things, that whether I have excess or nothing, that I have learned to be content. So here's what Paul is saying. Good food and clothing, those are needs, right? Houses are needs. And he's, he's on a whole different plane. He says the blessings, the ultimate blessings of God I'm not bought with money. It's not. You see, you tell a single mom who's working two jobs to trying to make it ends meet. You tell her that God's favor with her it, it, it's tied to her having a mansion. She'll never have a mansion. She'll never have enough money. And if you associate the blessing and favor of God with stuff, when you remove the stuff, then you remove the blessing. A friend of mine who discipled me when I was a new believer, he went to Africa often. And I mean, he would go not into the developed parts. He would go into the bush where they didn't really have running water. They didn't have lights. And... I was so blessed by this brother's faithfulness to the Lord. And he told me a story about going there one time and he was ministering to this, this village and there was a revival uh, several miles away. I think it had to be a, he had to get a car and go there. And, and anyway, he was going there to check in on the people that he was advising. And this young man came up to him and said, Brother, I don't think God loves you. And after he's been working through Romans and working through all this theology with him for five, five to seven years, and he said, he asked him why. He said, because I don't have what the preacher just told me I have to have. He said, I'll never have a car. I'll never be able to afford to send my children to college. And so he's hearing this health and wealth and prosperity preaching, and then he's looking at his lot, and he's saying, I must not be a Christian because I don't have these things. And the guy that discipled me says, look, the, Christ, the gospel is good news in Boston and in the bush of Africa. The gospel is good news when you're in prison and don't have anything and someone is telling you when to eat and when to go to the restroom. And it's good news when you have service. If the gospel ceases to be good news based on where you are and what you have and what condition of life you're in, it's not good news. So Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know where Paul wrote this letter from? Prison. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 1. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 1. Look at the end of Ephesians, verse 6. Three times in the book, Paul says, I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. I'm an ambassador in chains. His cell was no bigger than where we stand right now. And somehow, some way, he's writing from a cell, saying he's blessed. That means the blessing of God cannot be dependent on how.
how much of them I got in my house. It cannot be dependent upon how much freedom I have. It cannot be dependent upon how much power I have. It cannot. So that's what Paul does. The first thing he does is says, your father in heaven wants the greatest good. He wants to bless you with things that do not expire in this life. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now the question is, what are those blessings? Paul starts to unpack them here. The first thing he says is, is look at verse 4. Even as he chose us. So, so right there, stop, right there. We're going to take fragments at a time. He says, he chose you. Think about that. That the first blessing that Paul unpacks is the fact that you've been chosen. You've been called up by the king of heaven. See, I grew up in my neighborhood. We had a park around the corner. And then my parents were gracious enough to give us a basketball goal right in my yard. And we were that house where you would see 30 kids in the front yard. Guys would pee on my mom's monkey grass and he would die, right? We had a half of a yard with dirt and half of a yard with grass. Like it was like, it was just the house. And here's the thing, this is how we play basketball. How do you figure out who's going to play when you got 30 kids trying to play basketball? You know what you do, you, you get them, you get the ball, and you shoot, and the first person who makes a shot, you're the first captain. And everybody gets behind the goal. The next guy takes a shot. He misses. Somebody gets the rebound. And somebody comes up. He shoots again. And then finally you get two guys. And you're the captains. And then you shoot for first pick. You two guys shoot for the first pick. And you shoot again. And then you shoot again. Who's going to take the ball out first? I mean, everything on the court was settled with the shot. And then finally, you pick your teams. And out of 30 people on outside, everyone's not going to play. And so everybody's coming up to the, to, the, to, to the captain, pick me, pick me, pick me. And if you're seven feet, you pick automatically, right? <laughs> I see you, and I'm assuming you can ball, and you're picked, right? <laughs> but do you know that feeling? When you're chosen? When the captain of the team says, hey, little man, I want you over here. Isn't that affirming of all the people out here that, that you want me to play with you? Right? As a younger man, you look at me, and these guys are much taller than me, much better than me, and he looks at you, all right, little man, you're going to roll with me. Or maybe you submitted to a sorority or a fraternity, and you got your application, you got your community service, and hundreds of letters go in, hundreds of packets go in, and hundreds of people don't make it. You get word that you're in. How do you feel in that moment? Here's what Paul is saying. You are a Christian. God has showed up at the basketball court and said, I want you to play with me. Think about it. And I know it feels like we make the choice. It feels like we walk down the aisle. It feels like we're the one initiating. And what Paul is saying, no, you're responding to a choice of God already. That's the blessing. God chooses. Now, it gets better than this, though, right? Look at, look at when he says this happens. Look at, look at the middle part of verse 4. He chose us in him when, Paul? Before the foundation of Think about that. 
that when you open up your Bibles and you open up to Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the heavens, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's the thing. Genesis chapter 1 is not the beginning of God. That, that, that is not the beginning. That, that's the beginning of time as we know it. That's the beginning of this earth and quasars and galaxies and stars and moons and planets and solar systems and nebula. It's like the beginning of all of the created things that we see, but it's not the beginning of God. Here's a part that God chose you when? Before the foundations of the earth, which means that God's love for you is older than the dirt you walk on. Before we could measure time, before we knew what matter was, before we were on this planet. I mean, think about it. Like, here's like creation, and here's consummation when Jesus will return, and here's eternity past, I mean, future forever and ever and ever. And Paul says, back here, back here, before the creation of time and matter and space and people, I chose you. Now, why is this important? For two reasons. On the one hand, God is not like the basketball player who's scouting talent, looking for the most agile and the best and the elusive. He's not like the women looking at sorority packets who has the most community service hours, who is a legacy. You know, who might be good for the fraternity, for the sorority? He's not like the scholarship committee that's looking at your ACT score and assessing your good. God's choosing of you had absolutely nothing to do with you. It is sovereign grace where God unilaterally and according to his own good pleasure, before you had done anything good, he chooses you and says, I want that person to be mine. So your good works don't make you a suitable candidate. You had nothing, you had offered nothing to God. And here's the other thing, not only does your, not your good works get you in, but your bad works don't get you out. And that's also important because here's the thing, I'm splitting hairs here, but, but in God's economy, when you read Psalm 139, Psalm 139 says, before a word is uttered from my mouth, God knows them all together. It says that the Lord discerns my thoughts from afar. It says that, that before my days were anything, you had already given me my allotted time to live on the earth. It says this knowledge is too high for me. I cannot attain, obtain it. And here's what he's saying, that this knowledge of God is so high and lofty that if we go back into eternity past and if we could put on the mind of God, he would look into your life and my life and he would see all the stuff that we would ever do. He would see all the stuff that you have done and will do, and he would look at it and, and see right into it the stuff that you and I don't want anyone to know about. God back here, he saw it. He saw it and knew it all together, and he says, I still want that person to be mine. I still choose you, right? So it's this, this glorious picture of God's goodness to us where our good deeds don't get us in and our bad deeds don't kick us out. He just chooses because he chooses. Now, I know there's pushback. But what about the people who don't believe? What about the people who don't believe in the God that we believe in? So are we not saying God is unfair? And here's the thing. You make choices all the time. Like I got up and I, I said, oh, I'm going to wear my little tan jacket with my, my brown pants. Like I 
made that decision. I didn't check in with my wife. I just, I just got up to me yesterday, right? When you bought your car, your last car, you went on the lot, and there's maybe a hundred cars on the lot, and you chose one. If you've ever asked a girl to marry you, or if you said yes to a man, you make a choice. You make choices when you go eat at Popeye's versus churches, right? You make choices when you shop at Kroger over Whole Foods. You make choices when you have children and you name them that, that to be human is to have choices and freedom. So why do we get caught up when, when, when God Almighty says, I can exercise my choices, right? That your slacks aren't asking you, why didn't you wear me today? That the bunny bread in Kroger isn't asking you, why didn't you buy me today? That the CEO of Whole Foods is not asking you, why didn't you shop at Whole Foods today? That you and I, we have this sense of freedom to choose, and we make little choices all day long, and it's a part of our humanity. And here's the thing, if God is God, is he not free to make choices? Is he not free? Can, can, can the clay say back to the potter, like, why are you doing this? No, you can't. Like, he's God. He does what he wants. He does what he pleases. And here's the good news. The good news is the fact that he chooses anyone. He doesn't have to choose anyone. But Paul comes to them in Ephesus and says, you are beloved and you are blessed. Do you know your father chose you? He exercised his sovereign ability to choose. You that choice. And how do you know, Christian, that those who don't know Jesus, how do you know that they're not in Christ in eternity past? And it's, it's a matter of time before they hear you talk about it. God exercises his choice, his choosing, before the foundations of the world. Look at verse 5. Well, what's the other thing? He says, he predestined us for adoption, right? Look at it. He predestined us for adoption. So just in case you think that Paul made a mistake by talking of this choosing before the foundation of the world stuff, he says, no, buddy, this is the same sentence, and I'm going to bring it up one more time. He predestined us for adoption. Now, that word right there, predestined, in, in, in the Greek, it's, it's, it's two words that they kind of put, that Paul puts together, right? In the same way that we would say pre-game, right? So if you, if you watch, if you go home today and you watch uh, the 4.30 game that comes on TV, that if you start watching at 4 o'clock, it, it, it's pre-game. And the commentators will talk about a bunch of different stuff until the game comes on. If you're engaged, you go through premarital counseling. In other words, this is the counseling that happens before the wedding. When Paul says you have been predestined, he said you've been previously or before appointed. In other words, before what? Before the foundations of the world, God has already appointed you for what? To be a flunky, to be a servant, to be a slave? He says, no, you've been predestined, pre-appointed by God's sovereign grace to be a son or a daughter through adoption. He wants to adopt you into his family. He wants to give you his last name. He wants to give you and I all the rights and privileges that comes with being a son of God. That he wants to buy you from sin and buy you from bondage. He's going to lay down the life of his son to purchase you and to put the record of debt that is against you. He's going to nail it to the cross and pay that penalty to bring you and I into his family. He's going to adopt you. I know several of you have adopted children in the room. 
children get your last name. You treat them like your biological children. You look at them in their faces and you love them with every fabric of your being, even though you did not birth them. And here is what God is saying. The whole reason we have adoption here is pointing to a greater adoption that God the Father adopts every one of us who is not Jesus but is in Jesus. He adopts us into his family and we are sons and daughters. We are not orphans anymore. We are home with our Father. Paul says this is a spiritual blessing because God will never send you away. Ever send you away. You're his. I'm his. Now it starts to make sense why Paul begins his letter with blessing the Father. Because there is no Ephesian church if there is no electing love to the Father. What Paul does is he, he, he starts to write to the church, then he goes back and says, wait a minute, there's glory and praise and honor that is due the one who is himself responsible for the existence of the church. And so isn't it fitting, right, that every single blessing comes to us through the Son. Go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing. Look at verse 4. Even as He, the Father, chose us where? In Him, before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through who? Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 6. With which we have been blessed. Where? In the capital B, beloved. He's talking about Jesus. In other words, Christian, if you are a born-again believer and have put your faith and hope and trust in the Son, this is what comes with it in tone. That's why Jesus says, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, and no man comes to the body. Because you believe in God the Father, that's good. Believe also me. If you've seen me, seen the Father. What is Jesus doing? He's talking about the redemptive purpose to save starts with the Father and is realized in the Son. So that when we draw near to the Son, we have every single thing the Father wants to give us. That's ours. Now, there are times in Scripture when God does not reveal why he does what he does. And there are times like our passage where the veil is torn. And we get to why. That's what you see. The, the, why has God done this? You see the first thing, and you see it. It's really easy when you see these. So look at, look at verse 4. Even as the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And look at that comma, and then look at that next phrase. That. So that with this in, with this as the end goal, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In other words, when God is doing this work in eternity past, it has your future at stake. That He might present you and I holy and without fault and blemish before Himself. Now, how are we made holy? How are blemishes removed through the atoning work? Jesus. And so when God 
calls us and, and, and predestines us to be his own, he's also saying, I'm doing this with this goal in mind that I want to make you holy and you can't come into my presence on your own marriage. You can't come into my presence into a relationship with me on your own. You need a mediator. You need an advocate. And I'm putting forth Jesus to be that for you. And he's going to make you holy and blameless in my sight. So that's one of the reasons why God is doing what he's doing. He wants to call a people to himself. Look at, look at what else he says in verse 5. That he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Now that word right there, purpose, it, I, I think the way it's translated in our Bibles, it, it doesn't quite get the full nuance. So when you read Philippians chapter 1, Paul says some preach Christ from envy and rivalry and others from goodwill. It's the same word that, you lose, that, that, that Luke uses in verse, chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. And so that word purpose right there, it has this overtone of pleasure and delight. So now think about what Paul is saying. That the Father did this according to the pleasure of his will. Now put those two things together because God's will is not like the will of humans. I can will something and want something, but I don't have the power to make it happen. Not God. What God wants, what God desires, it does happen, and that's God's will. But here's what Paul does. Paul combines this dominance and this power of God also with this sense of pleasure and delight. In other words, God wants to adopt us into his family according to his pleasurable power. In other words, there, there is not just dominance, there is not just dominance, but there is also delight that, beloved, God chooses to use his strength and his will and his power because he delights in you and he wants you in the family. And you know the difference when someone is just doing something because you told them to. And you know the difference when they take delight in doing what they're doing. You, you got kids, right? And you want your kids to obey, obey. And they obey because you're mommy and daddy, right? They will step up, okay. But don't we want something more than that? Don't we want them to find joy in obeying us? To not just do it because we want them to do it, but to find delight in doing it? And here is what Paul is saying, that God does this with his strong arm, with his mighty hand, One of the other reasons he's doing all this because the, the pleasurable nature of his will. And look at, look at verse 5. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption. I'm of the opinion that this in love, it tracks with the predestined and not with the phrase before it. People are kind of all over the place with what to do with that phrase. It's really a complicated sentence. But I think that, 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 that we get it right in this, in this translation right here. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In other words, Paul is telling us what's motivating God's choosing before the world. That when you peel back all of the things that God is doing, what's in the middle of the heart of God is love. Now, Typically, when we think about salvation, right, we tend to think about, I walk down the aisle, I make a profession of faith, 
Some of you know what this is? I should talk about it, and then somebody went home and got me this for this service, the ladies' phone service. This is like this, this Russian nesting doll, right? And so outwardly, it kind of looks like it's, it's a doll, and, and there's so much inside of it that's hidden from your sight. And when we think about our salvation and our conversion, we tend to look at the outside, and what Paul is doing is, no, there's more inside of it. God wants to adopt you into his family, and there's more inside of that. And what's inside of that is that God has chosen you before the foundations of the world, and what's beneath that is he has predestined you to be adopted. And then my illustration just messed up. <laughs> and right in the middle is love. What's driving it all? Sovereign love from the Father. We might see it as I came to faith, and Paul says, no. There is so much that you can't see that's already happened that it is the reason why you believe. Love. The fourth reason that God is doing this is to the praise of his glorious grace. It's no wonder that when Paul starts to write this letter, that three times in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. In other words, God is doing all of this to put grace on display, to make us make much of him and less of ourselves. It's not about your choice. It's not about your work. It's about the sovereign grace of God that transcends time. And this is the only way that we're going to be saved. It's because grace has been there. This is why God is doing it. That we might make much of grace. See, this is where Christianity is different from all other religions. All other religions, if you get to the heart of them, they tell you, just pray this many times facing this way. They tell you, just say this. They tell you, just go make this pilgrimage. They tell you, just do this, just do this, just do this, and then God will like you. And Christianity says, no. God's going to do it all. It's not, it's not get right and then be accepted. God says, no, you can't get right. There's another who has been right, and his name is Jesus, and I accept you freely, not counting your words. Think about that. This is upside-down religion. That we might make much of grace. Grace says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Grace says that this is where God draws the line and sets what he's doing up and against and better than any other religion out there. Grace says that your works do not earn God's favor. Grace says that in spite of you, I will pursue you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. And that is a promise from the Father to his people. How do we respond to this, right? We look at what the blessings are. We look at why God's up to it. I gave you four reasons. How do we respond? Remember, this is not simply information for information's sake. This is doctrine and dances. It has to get down in here and do something in us what is the response that God is seeking? If he wants to showcase his glorious grace, he wants us to make much of it. And that's why our thought, uh, our preparation and reflection quote, I'll read it. God the Father is in your bulletin. 
God the Father enjoys imparting his riches to many children. Consequently, as men and women break out in praise, their pleasure in God is a response to his delight in doing good to them. It was God's intention that his free and glad choice of men and women to be his sons and daughters might result in their praise of his glorious grace. That's why David wrote in Psalm 34 and Psalm 103 that I will bless the Lord at all times. His praises shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And this is David writing before Jesus shows up, before he understands all that we understand. We're on this side of the cross and on that side of the cross. David's like, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. How much more should we Christians? We, we see it all now. We see it. We, we can see dimly but clearly. We can gaze into the mysteries of God. How can God's praises fall from our lips? How can we not praise him? How can we not come in here and, and not sing? How can we... Uh, God's calling us to respond. That the only thing he wants us to do in this passage praise him. Sing of my praises. And that is what it's calling us to do. So there are some spheres of, of praise, right? In your own time in the Lord. Praise Him. When you're riding in the car going to work, put some music on. Praise Him. That in your individual prayer life, let's move beyond asking God for stuff and realize that He is the treasure. And let's have our eyes opened by faith to the wonderful things He has done in Christ. Just marvel at your God. Just love on Him. Just sing of His praises. Just do it in your own time. Do it in your home, right? Like right now, my mother, my grandmother is dying. And she had an aneurysm and a stroke about two years ago. Right now, my mother has been taking care of my mother and my dad uh, for six weeks at a time. And then my aunt takes care of me for six weeks, at a, six weeks at a time. And it, it never fails. That I walk in there and I see my grandmother who can't talk, but she can talk a little, who's disoriented. And you want to know in the background, the music that's playing, great is thy faithfulness. Like my mother's playing this in the background, reminding her that, that your God is good. He has not forgotten about you. It's one of the favorite things I like to do when I go see my mother-in-law, right? That she's cooking and cooking greens and cornbread, and you listen in the other room. You hear music, and you hear Jesus preaching. It's surrounding our home with things that remind us and trigger us to praise the Lord. He has done this. Now, why do we do that? Because it's so easy. And it's so easy to let what's happening in our lives shake us that we don't remember that God is faithful. Put these trigger points in your lives where we remember the faithfulness of God. That when we gather corporately, sing. It doesn't matter if you can't clap for a two and a four. It doesn't matter if you can't harmonize. It don't matter. Like God says, sing. Make a joyful noise to me. Do not check your emotions at the door. Don't, 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 don't come in here and check the emotions at the door and just sit, right? Praise your creator. If you want to say amen, say amen. If you want to stand, you stand. If you want to clap, you clap. If you want to be silent and, and take it all in, you do that too. But praise the Lord. It is good for your soul. It is a commandment. God has earned your praise. He has done great things towards you in Jesus. Open your mouths, Christians. 
That's why uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, he he noticed this tension in his congregation, right? So he, he he's a he was a pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, and he preached 35 sermons on Ephesians 1. 35 sermons on one chapter. I'm not gonna do you like that. <laughs> he had 230 in the entire book. Not gonna do that, right? But this is listen to what he wrote. As human beings, we all tend to show our reactions and our enthusiasms. You have but to pass a soccer ground, soccer game on a Saturday afternoon, and you will hear people expressing themselves very definitely. The same thing happens when they listen to a play or when they see anything that pleases them. When they read a book that pleases them, they must tell someone about it. They must sing about it. Do we Christian people do the same with respect to the advent of the Son of God into this world? I sometimes fear that the majority of people who are outside the church today refuse to even listen to the gospel mainly because we have failed to give them the impression that it is the most wonderful event to ever happen in history. We are not singing his praises. We are more excited about soccer than magnifying the grace and glory of God as we should. And therefore, our neighbors are I watched football yesterday, and I love it. But what would have made him jump up and run around the room and scream to see a man catch a catch than I am to see my Savior lay down his life? Don't check your emotion at the door first. Make much of God, because God has made much of I also think we praise him, not just when we're here, but when we leave this place. Paul says that God chose us that we might be holy and blameless. And I don't think that just means when we're saved. I think it has this view towards when you walk out of here, go adorn the message of the gospel with your life. Praise the Lord, not just how we respond. Praise and adoration and singing and speaking the good news of the gospel back to ourselves wherever we go. I want to close with this. There's a photo that went viral. Have you, have you, do you know the back of the story of this? Crazy. All right, that's good, right? So this, this photo was taken by a famous photographer by the name of James Day and it, it went viral in the Huffington Post. And uh, you, you can't see it because it's kind of grainy, I guess, but there's some tears kind of rolling down her face. But here's the backstory to um, He's a good photographer. He was about to do his very traditional uh, wedding shots where the couple comes out and then he gets them with the big sunlight or the, the, I mean, the, the, the setting of the sun and he gets these big outdoor pictures. And finally, he had this impulse to do something different. And he says, he called the man to himself. He says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to relax. I'm not going to tell you how to hold each other's hands. I just want you to be with your wife. He says, then I want you to tell her why you chose her out of all the other children, women on the earth. He says, here's the thing. 
don't tell me. Go tell her in her ear. And the husband walks over and starts to tell his wife why he chose her out of all the women on the earth. And listen to what the Bible said. He said, I can see Rosalind's eyes start to glisten. And then the most beautiful tears stream down her face. And then I found myself crying, trying to capture the shock. Oh, love, you are so precious. Beloved, what we have in this passage is your Father in heaven coming to you, telling you as his son or daughter, not just that you are adopted. He whispers in our ears and he tells us why. And he says, let that sink in your heart and let it change you. Amen? Prayer, and you be honored and praised in Christ's name.